Welcome to PB with Jays, Houston edition. This is a very special edition we have coming at you today. When I say Houston edition, I mean almost Houston edition. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's content Houston, but recording New Orleans. We, we had an afterthought of recording on the road or in Houston. Oh, it wasn't or... even an afterthought for me. It was a pre-thought, was and a I just forgot. And then it was like really <clears throat> disappointed on the, the way back. Yeah, Just but to preface all of this, uh, Jacob and I traveled to Houston this weekend for a undergraduate scientific conference. Indeed, as you might guess, Joseph was <laughs> the reason we were there. <laughs> uh, but you did sneak in and act pretty all saw science like yeah, for I, a quick chunk of time there. I brought my fancy clothes uh, and walked in like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And, uh, it was pretty I, impressive. I listened to some science. <laughs> it was awesome. Do you remember anything about what you learned? I do. All right, hit, hit me. Um, I remember specifically some stuff about um, diabetes and how this particular person who was studying diabetes could not use mice because of phenotype issues and they didn't match up correctly. So they used stem cells. Uh, also, they, they couldn't specifically study like type 1 or type 2 diabetes because they're too complicated. Ah, uh, yes. So they used a different version that only had like one issue with... Uh, one word. gene mutation. Ah, I was eventually going to get to that word. <laughs> I knew it. I just couldn't say it. Um, yeah, nice. That's what I, I, I remember that one pretty well. And then um, someone presented something about, like, glial cells and PTSD or I don't know. <laughs> well, that is our next preview that requires some background. <laughs> that is what uh, my presentation was on, uh, were glial cells and morphological changes and PTSD. And so as we were coming back, a combination of us driving for the day and being gone for the weekend, so not having a lot of research time... <laughs> Uh, and thinking it would just kind of be cool to do a little bit of something different and maybe highlight some of what I presented this weekend, we are going to present a, a very special PB with J's edition of my thesis research. Yeah. We need some dramatic music. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped saying it because I was like, oh, I should just edit it in there when I do it later. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so that's what we're going to try and do. So we, we figured we'd format it kind of... Um, what do we say, like Q&A style, basically? Um, attempting to, I guess, elucidate some things without me just going on a monologue. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. All right. Um, to start it off, this is what I'm going to have you do. Okay. I'm going to go back up to your title slide, and I want you to read your title and then pause for about four seconds. Four seconds? Yeah. All right. I wonder where we're going to go with this. Uh, changes in glial cell morphology and activation in response to severe acute stress in Rattus norvegicus. Awesome! That sounds really cool. <laughs> um, I will be in inserting some music. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I'm excited. I'm It'll excited. Be dramatic. As long as I remember. We're expand. Yeah, it'd be just super awkward if you don't. <laughs> uh, we're expanding our our editing capabilities here. Really, we're gonna try. <laughs> try. Yeah, so that's the running title I've got going. All right, now my my first questions. Um, so we've talked about glial cells plenty. 
Yes. Um, we know, obsession. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we know that. Um, but let's go through words I don't know in your title. Morphology. What, what does that mean? Shape. So changes so, in glial cell shape. Ed Sheeran, shape of you, could be morphology of you. And it would be way more scientific. And way less successful. But <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. I love with the morphology of you. <laughs> Alright, so changes in glial cell shape Yep. and activation in response to severe acute stress. What is, what is severe acute stress? So severe is pretty much what it sounds like. Oh, so I guess severe acute sounds like an oxymoron, but in the science world it's not. Severe is basically what it sounds like, um, something extreme. It's not just some sort of normal stressor. So this would be the difference between perhaps uh, lots of difficult classes in a semester and getting in a car wreck in the semester. Um, one of them is a lot more severe. Uh, acute simply means it's a singular event. So this would be the difference between getting in a car accident in the semester and having your parents go through a divorce throughout the semester. Both are very severe, but one of them is more long-term and one of them is acute. So, Okay, and then all this in Rattus Norvegicus. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced way too many ways. But I always say Norvegicus. But yeah. Norvegicus. That's the one. And that's just a regular old lab rat. Quite literally a lab rat. Which is a, called a Wistar rat. In case you were curious. Are those the fellows you played with all summer? It's not. Those no. Are, those were mice. Oh, there are differences that I am unaware they are different. of. Rats are much, much bigger. So rats, I don't know the, the grams for rats, but I saw a couple this summer they're probably this big, which is, it's like a small Nerf football, maybe. I was about to say, saying this big while showing me <laughs> with your hands probably isn't on a podcast. No, I think it's like a like a Nerf football, like a small one. Uh, and then mice are like 20 grams, which is, man, like a big mouse would be the size of a computer mouse. That'd be a big mouse, like okay. a very large mouse. All right, and this isn't really... Completely relevant, I guess, probably to your presentation. But now I'm just curious. So if you could give a brief answer, what's the differences in rats and mice and studying them? Or is there really a difference in why you would choose one over the other? Um, rats are easier. They're slower. So they're easier to kind of watch behaviorally. Um, mice reproduce a little faster. So genetic experiments are more common in mice. I think we know more about mice genes also. So they're a little easier to manipulate, generally speaking. Um, rats are a little bigger, so sectioning brain tissue is a little easier, or even extracting organs. So they're a little easier to find and a lot more difficult to damage. Yeah, those are the, the big ones, I would say. Um, so I don't know why this lab uses rats, because it's actually a collaboration. So I, I've been working, as a lot of you guys know, in um, a different lab, in a uh, lab on Tulane's campus, but then this one is a Totally unrelated lab, but they asked us to do glial morphology analysis, so hence the new introduction. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know why they choose to use rats instead of mice, because there's actually a lab right across from theirs that uses mice predominantly. So, all right, yeah. Well, that's some fun. That's the fun fact of the day. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Fun oh. facts on right rice versus mats, rats versus mice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so let's dive into what we got. All right, so 
your your presentation is split up into four sections. It is. Um, yeah, background, you have goals, I guess goals of your lab and your research. Right, so um, what we're trying to do with the current project. Okay, and you have progress, I guess, within that context, and then um, future, what you anticipate coming in the in the next few months or years, or I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, some of it's anticipation. A lot of it is like, hey, this is what we should do. These are suggestions of potential future studies. So Okay. Uh, yeah, and then the goals and the progress kind of got mushed together for this weekend's presentation because I don't have any progress uh, <laughs> because switching labs also comes with paperwork and approval and stuff like that. Um, so I stained my tissues in my old lab a good long while ago and was just recently, last week, approved to use the microscope in the new lab to image those those stainings. So I'll do that this week, actually, which will be super cool. Nice. With the really cool, awesome microscope? Yeah, that thing's amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> Has a bunch of lasers. Does super detailed imaging. I'm excited. Should get good pictures out of it. Nice. All right, so let's jump into background. So this is a study on PTSD. Yeah, so I think the background um, will actually do a, a decent job of serving as a pseudo-PTSD episode. I'll teach you guys a little bit about it at least. And so the way I, the way I split it up for background is kind of what is PTSD in, in the sense of why does it matter? And then how do we even study it, right? So that's, that's always the question if you're looking to study something. Are the animal models good? Like, are they valid to use? Or are you just saying that and they don't really have any human relevance? So, why does it matter? Uh, so, PTSD was actually introduced into the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, it's a psych psychology uh, book. So, it was introduced to the DSM in 1981. And so, really, any sort of formal study on PTSD happens after that. Uh, as far as what we know as PTSD. So since then, lots of studies have happened on sort of the, the general population. Um, you know, who, who has PTSD, what can be the effects, uh, what are the long-term consequences, all that kind of stuff. And um, what, what they've found in some of those studies is that about 5% of the U.S. population um, has the lifetime prevalence of PTSD, which is kind of a weird thing to explain but it sort of looks at everybody over their life and then has says like 5% of that will present PTSD, but you don't have to always have it. And cause you can be, you know, if you go through therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, all that kind of stuff. So it's weird, but 5% needless to say is, is a pretty large number. Um, important enough for, for it to be looked at. Uh, the other thing that's been really big in studies recently has, has been, uh, traumatic events, which they label as TEs. And so traumatic events are one of the fundamental precursors for diagnosing someone with PTSD. There has to be a traumatic event to trigger the development of PTSD. So uh, what they found is about two-thirds of the population in the U.S. has been exposed to a traumatic event. And then of that two-thirds, about two-thirds of those have been exposed to more than one. Uh, so this brings a lot of sociological and public health questions up because it, we're, we're finding so many people exposed to these traumas uh, that that's almost purely environmental, right? So um, you're not going to, like some of these are going to be car accidents. Um, some of these are going to be 
I don't know, a, a boating accident or something. Something that you just can't really help. Um, or even, you know, you hurting your head. That would be considered a traumatic event. Um, but what what the sociological importance is that a lot of these are um, childhood abuse, um, you know, marital abuse, um, gang violence, like those sorts of like neighborhood violence. These are events that we absolutely can prevent, but have have not had a good culture in the U.S. to prevent them. So that's that's important. That matters, and that segues into the next part I talked about, which is with the rising uh, prevalence in the adolescent population. And what they found was that about ten percent, a little under ten percent, by age eighteen um, of of adolescents with a traumatic event meet PTSD criteria. So we see that a ton of people are being exposed to traumatic events. These traumatic events seem to be pocketed in certain populations, which oftentimes end up being um, urban minority populations. And then we see that by 18, 10% of those people could be qualified as um, PTSD diagnosis, whether or not they go in to be officially diagnosed. That's a huge number and could be a, a really debilitating factor in a uh, oftentimes these communi- communities that are already being oppressed in some way, shape, or form. So that's another important part. The, the other part of those uh, is that there's a lot of comorbid factors, which, do you remember what comorbid is? We talked about it a couple times before. Have we? We definitely have, because you asked me what comorbid is. I'm going to ask again. <laughs> no, this is the point. You know, eventually it becomes solidified in your brain. Uh, comorbid basically just means seen with, uh, so it's a, a component that's also seen with PTSD in this case, but it can be whatever disease or symptom or disorder. Um, so in this case, we see what's called metabolic syndrome is huge, and that has an inf- impact on neural integrity. Uh, we see specific risks for uh, cognitive decline. We see accelerated aging. We see immune dysfunction. All of these things happening along with PTSD. So obviously, such a severe health impact uh, with a lot of people being exposed to traumas, something needs to be done, right? The, the, the need for study is there. So that's where we come in. Uh, the next question of this was how, like, how do you study PTSD? Um, so we mentioned we're doing it in a rat. How does that really work? Technically, you don't say we're studying PTSD in rats because it doesn't really work that way. Uh, PTSD and its diagnosis, and pretty much with all um, psychiatric diagnoses, are not 100% contingent on on just. I don't know, I guess just the doctor's observations. The patient has to tell um, symptoms, history, stories, experiences, descriptions. Rats don't do that. Uh, so what we, we do is try and model it. So we say this is a PTSD model, a severe acute stress model. And what they end up doing is um, using what is a synthetic fox odor, which is really weird. It's like synthetic fox urine. And they use that as um, to activate this innate fear response that we see in rodents, also in, in mice, rats, I think hamsters too. It's not as common because it's not as common of a lab animal, but I believe it's the same way. And so that that is the severe acute stress that um, we also experience as humans. What's what's useful is twofold, uh, is, a, is a two components of this in rats, and that's that not all rats develop PTSD when you expose them, which is the same as humans because not all humans develop PTSD when they're exposed to the same trauma. Um, You can look at war veterans as an example of this. And then the HPA axis is uh, is activated. I'm sure you're wondering, Jacob, 
What is the HPA axis? How did I know? So uh, that stands for the hypothalamal pituitary adrenal axis, which is the sequence of events that happens in your body that is uh, an activated, I guess, innate response that your body has to stress to help you cope with and deal with that stress. So one of the, the huge components of this is cortisol. I don't know if you've heard of that, glucocorticoids. and rats, it's called corticosterone. If you read kind of, I don't know, fringe scientific articles, the ones that may or may not be valid, and then a lot of the ones that are, like it's kind of a buzzword these days. So people will talk about needing to reduce your cortisol exposure or whatever. But So it's a thing that's relatively well known, um, but not talked about a lot. We see that's also activated in rats. So this sort of lends credence to it being a good model because we see that activated in humans too. So that's the super long and extended background of what we're doing. Um, you can sort of decide where you want to go next. Okay, um, so just to make sure I'm grasping it all. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so you introduce this traumatic experience or severe acute stress of mm-hmm. fox pee yes. with the rat. Uh, synthetic fox pee. Synthetic fox Okay, yeah. Some people do use actual pee. So another guy who presented his lab uses uh, bobcat urine. So he was like, why do you guys use the synthetic stuff? And I was like, honestly, probably just because it's synthetic and easy to get to. And bobcat urine seems like a really weird thing to acquire. (laughs) But anyway, so you can just use some sort of fox, bobcat, predator thing. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And then anyways, then these rats respond to it somehow by or their their response is within or interacts with the HPA axis. Yeah, so that's a, a part of the response to the stress. Yep. Okay, and then so what are you what are you doing with Are you looking at that with your research? That yeah, axis? Um, that's so yeah. The lab that we're collaborating with looked at that axis, and they took blood samples of rats that they exposed to TMT, which is the synthetic urine, and they quantified whether or not the HPA axis was being activated by checking for hormones that we know are released because of the HP axis. And they found that it is integrally involved. And that that follows other literature that has found the same thing. So it was consistent. Okay, so the, the other lab has been doing this research. Yep. They gather that information. Then it comes to your lab? Yeah, so they had a huge paper that was released, actually. And this is another part of the background that I won't go into a lot of depth with because this is kind of the science-y jargon part that I think people were more interested at at the conference. Um, but, so they did this big study about kind of, I don't know, exploring a lot of different um, proteins, a lot of transcription factors, um, a lot of messenger molecules in the in the brain, and specifically in the hippocampus of these rats that had been exposed and developed sort of signs of the PTSD model. So they, they looked at all this stuff. And then at the end of their study, they were like, well, let's, let's look at some glial cells too and see if anything's going on there. Because they were looking exclusively at neurons and um, just sort of the I guess, brain tissue per se, but they didn't really look at glial cells. Okay. And so they were like, hey, you want to look at glial cells? We know Manus McLean is the man for glial cells, and they sent it his way, and it's a relatively small study for him, and since he has a lot of other stuff going on. And so I was like, hey, can I do a thesis? You got anything that would be cool? He's like, yeah, let's do this. (laughs) So now I'm here, and that's, that's sort of how it arrived to me. 
And so the description was a fairly ambiguous of just, hey, let's check out the glial cells in the hippocampus. <laughs> we're like, all right, cool. So that's okay. where we are. Nice. So let's see what what is um, so if if it's such a vague thing like, hey, look at the glial cells. Are you just looking at them, or are you <laughs> are you looking for specific things, or what are you trying to do with with that? Well, we hang out with them on the weekends. And we go to the fly and get lunch. And that's that's who you've been ditching me for? <laughs> <laughs> no, so there's two ways that we're going to look at them for this project. And we'll sum it up quick so we won't be super long on this one. Uh, even though we always do that. Uh, but one way is through immunohistochemistry. And one way is through cell culturing. So immunohistochemistry, we... Should I explain this? So um, it can be pretty complicated, but basically we use mammals or organisms' natural ways of fighting disease. So have you heard of antibodies? Kind of yes. how vaccine works with antibodies. So we use that natural way of fighting disease with antibodies and kind of manipulate it to make certain proteins and certain regions of the brain light up under certain colors of light. So it's kind of cool. Um, so we'll soak them a bunch of baths of these chemicals which are just antibodies so we've taken them from other animals the antibodies similar to what we have uh, but we take those and then we what's called conjugate them um, so we'll conjugate them to some sort of fluorescent molecule so when the string of antibodies attaches to a particular protein and a sample of cells or tissue that we have um, the end of that string will be the fluorescent molecule which will light up when we put a particular color on it so what we're going to do is, um, you know, wash our samples with these antibodies that have the, the fluorescent molecules, and then we're going to examine them under that super fancy microscope I was telling you about, and then we're going to quantify kind of the shapes and the changes and the forms of what we see. There's this thing called shoal analysis, which uses concentric circles. There's a super cool software called Neurolucida, which will, I don't know, like quantify what changes you see and, and what shapes and volumes and all that sort of stuff. Um, so the, the arms of the these types of cells, which are the astrocytes. So we'll do all that with immunohistochemistry. You follow up to there. So when you say you're looking at the changes, in the, do you have like samples from the same rats before and after or? Not exactly, but almost. So we have a control cohort and we have an experimental cohort, which is you'll find that in any science experiment ever. And there are, sometimes there'll be more control, sometimes there'll be fewer controls, but there will always be controls. Um, and so that's how you compare. That's how you know if there's some sort of change. And so you take a bunch of controls and you quantify all their cells. You take a bunch of experimental and you quantify all their cells. And then you run statistical analyses through averages, um, standard deviations, means, all that stuff. And then you compare the two and see if they're statistically significant and they're different. And are there are a lot of computer programs to do that. And if they are, you have some exciting data. And if they're not, then what you found isn't necessarily untrue, um, but it doesn't appear to be necessarily true. <laughs> it's kind of the way that works. My, my PI will always say, um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So if you just don't find evidence for something, that does not mean that that's something you were looking for doesn't exist. It certainly doesn't help your case. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But it's not evidence of absence of that thing. So, gotcha. But that's what we'll do for our controls. Yeah. Okay. So, 
Cool. And in this case, the controls are just exposed to salt water. It's called saline solution, so it's basically nothing. Um, so they'll expose them in the same way, but just do it with a different material. So, And the next part is cell culturing. This part's even easier to explain. Basically, we'll just take cells from hippocampal samples. I don't know. The source will probably be rats because it would need to be rats. Um, but in my, my lab on the North Shore, we usually have primate samples. Um, but any either way, you, you take your samples and you grow them up. So you give them proper food. Uh, you give them proper lighting, proper warmth, and then your cells start to grow. So you know bacteria how or mold that grows on your food, and then a little bit starts, and then it just kind of keeps going and going, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Same exact concept, except now you're using brain cells. Okay. Um, so it's just a lot cooler. <laughs> and you're trying to grow them, and they're not. it's not like invading your food or whatever. So we'll do that, and then we'll just have a... You know, our controls, like I mentioned, and then we'll have various experimental plates, which is usually what we grow them on, but we could grow them on whatever shape. We'll have various experimental samples, and then we'll expose them to just chemicals. Um, So the the two big ones that we're going to do are involved with that fear response I mentioned earlier. So the HPA axis, we're going to expose them to corticosterone, which we saw increased in the hippocampal regions of these rats. So we'll expose them to that. We'll do the same thing with norepinephrine and or noradrenaline. They're the same thing, uh, which is another component of fear response or body activation. And then we'll look for a few others. And uh, I've had a few ideas. So another type of cell we're looking at is involved with immune response. And some of the activated chemicals that are released from that cell are called cytokines. So I think maybe exposing um, these cells to some cytokines might be a good idea to see what that does to them and um, how that could Maybe if you expose them to both cytokines and corticosterone, what changes could uh, could happen there, like that kind of thing. So we'll have a lot of different experimental groups for that one. But basically just grow cells up and just shove stuff on them. <laughs> and, and, you, and then you watch what happens. Okay, so it's kind of a two-step thing. You're analyzing these cells sent over from the other lab, these astrocy- astrocytes? Yeah, so we're looking at astrocytes. We're also looking at another one called microglia, and that's the immune one. And then you're kind of using that information you find from there to work on these brain cells that you're building up and then testing? 100%, yeah. So we're using info that they found on the last study to kind of direct what we look at in the fluorescent tagging and then what we toss on them, basically, in the cell cultures. Okay. Yep. So kind of building off what they did and studying glial cells instead of the neurons they were looking at. All right, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. That's what we got. And then I guess we'll briefly touch on future stuff, maybe. Got any questions about that? Yeah, Joe. Um, could you tell me about the future stuff? There you go. <laughs> I honestly thought you might have had a different question. I wasn't really sure. Um, let's see. How about we change this up since we don't have a lot of time? You pick one of these. So I have my presentation open here for, for old Jacob. You pick one of these that seems most interesting to you. Uh, one of the... I guess, bolded terms for future potential explorations. And then I can dive into that one quickly. Okay. Um, Let's see. Which one do you talk about? Oh, I'm going to choose transcription changes because that involves Jacob. Ah, the Jacob protein. Yes. All right. So there's this fancy protein called Kreb, which helps the brain make memories, especially spatial memories, which is really important for PTSD 
because what we see is when someone's back in a similar environment to where their traumatic exposure was, their traumatic event, uh, that there are a lot of sort of activation uh, occurring. So Kreb is important in that. Jacob is important in the Kreb shutoff pathway. So you shut off Kreb. <laughs> this was so. It was so hard not to laugh <laughs> as I was watching you present. I did not look at you when I started talking about Jacob. I just didn't. Um, <laughs> it was really funny. But yeah, so so Jacob is part of the Kreb shutoff. And what we found is that Jacob is increased. And what we also found is this this whole pathway, these interactions, are controlled by what are called transcription factors, uh, transcriptional changes. So transcription factors and changes work in a lot of different ways, but you can kind of think of this there being these molecules that are just ready to be immediately produced. So the way I think of it is that it's at the end of the assembly line of a, I don't know, what a car factory, and it's just waiting for all the pieces to be put together, and then the car drives off, and it's good to sell or drive off the lot or whatever. Um, so that's that sort of transcriptional factors are ready to be produced, as opposed to transcriptional changes, nuclear factors, in which case... Uh, nothing has been produced yet. So the car has to go through the entire assembly line, making the wheels and the engine and all the other, the frame, before it can be put together. So it's the difference between having thing, everything ready and prepped and having to make everything to be prepped. So uh, what we found is that a lot of quick transcriptional changes were occurring. So the stuff that was ready to be prepped was being activated. Uh, what I'm curious to ask is if the stuff that sometimes needs to be prepped so the stuff that hasn't been you know gone down the assembly line yet if that stuff changes at all and so we have this really cool technique of, of exploring that it's called rna seq which means rna sequencing because the directions for the stuff that hasn't been created so the the stuff before the assembly line is done comes from uh, messenger rna is what it's called so I want to see if there are changes in messenger RNA levels within these cells that we're looking at. So it's not necessarily the stuff that's activated quickly. We see changes in that, pretty easy to assess. I want to see if there's any changes further back, basically. So, yeah, that's it. Transcriptional changes. Cool beans. And just so all of our listeners are aware, that is one of five different categories <laughs> he has listed on on his slide. There are also a few other slides we didn't really jump into very much. Uh, and in the thirty minutes you've been listening to this, we've we've covered you know only part of his presentation. He covered all of this in twelve minutes at the conference. It was so fast, man. It was so <laughs> fast. Yeah, I think so. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of data because I've been going through the kind of the rigmarole of bureaucracy in a university, which is fine like it's necessary whatever it's half part of life still a bummer that i didn't have anything to present really but i do think that caused me to think through things really well and i don't think a lot of other people did that as much as i did so i do think i was strong in that sense my presentation was eh overall but thinking about future explorations generally people were just like continue studying this or explore other regions and i i think i actually gave it some real thought which was kind of cool nice so anyway you did the best. It's you're that's the, not what I'm saying. Best of all of them. <laughs> but I do like to think through things. Is maybe <laughs> maybe what I'm getting at. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the best best presentation I I watched. I don't know about that, but I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, that's what we got for you. Hopefully, it was kind of cool. I don't know. I know a lot of people are always kind of curious what I'm doing, 
And as you can see, I could talk your ear off about it. So this is a good excuse for me to talk your ear off about it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I very much enjoyed it because that helped clarify a lot of the questions I didn't even know I had <laughs> when I was watching your presentation. Nice. Uh, so that was, that was cool for me, too. Sweet. Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's all we got. I'll let you close it out since I was doing most of the talking this week. You can practice it again. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's special episode of Physiology of the Brain with Jacob and Joseph, Houston edition. Uh, check us out on the web, on the on the online, at pbwithjays.com. That's the one. Send us an email at pbwithjays at gmail.com. And check us out on podcasts. Dude, you crushed it. Cool. <laughs> Have a great week.